slightly disturbing when you looked at each other, but I'll get better. <laughs> but stunning. Just realised I don't have the clicker, Mark. If I could have the clicker, that would be pretty cool. Thank you. All right, hey, uh, kia ora and welcome. We are in the series uh, at Bonnie Life at the moment called One Plus One, where we're talking uh, about love and sex and romance and singleness and marriage and all kinds of stuff. Thank you very much, sir. So over the last four weeks, we've uh, gone through uh, four of the six in the series. So we started with finding the one, and I explored um, really what is a Greek myth, that there is someone out there who is your other half and completes you. And we talked in that message about rather than trying to mystically find your soulmate out of everyone in the world who will complete you, what the Bible um, calls us to do is to wisely choose uh, a soulmate and commit uh, to them. So the, the whole mystical sense of your other half is, is kind of really debunked uh, by, the, by the Bible. And then secondly, we looked at finding the one, capital O, which was about finding uh, God and really understanding that it is God who is the one who meets the deepest needs of our soul. And if we look to any other human being, a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband or wife, anyone else, to meet the deepest needs in us, then we're going to be in big trouble. That God has created us first and foremost for a relationship with him. And more important than anything else is really pursuing God. That God is the one we're looking for and he is the one who completes us. And then two weeks ago we talked about becoming the one. And the importance of actually really focusing on ourselves and focusing on becoming the person God wants us to be um, more than, than finding the one we're seeking or changing the one we've found, actually putting the focus on ourselves and really becoming the people, the men and women that God wants us to be. And then last week we looked at content as one, really uh, speaking to the issue of singleness and uh, addressing in particular those who are single and really um, exploring what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that singleness is a gift, not a, a, some spiritual ability to handle being single, but actually much more God's plan A for this season of life. And if you're single, what we saw last week was that singleness is not a plan B, that we, we are missing out. It is plan A for you in this season of your life right now. So having walked through those, we are into the second to last one in the series. We'll finish it next Sunday, but today we are looking at this, uh, really, the idea of one plus one, which is obviously what a whole series is called, but in particular this message today, uh, one plus one, and we are looking at marriage. So having looked at singleness last week, we are now looking at marriage. Um, and I want to come back to this key verse that we highlighted at the start of last week's message from 1 Corinthians 7 verse 7 where Paul said, I wish all of you were as I am, which was being single. So he was really elevating uh, being a single uh, follower of Jesus and not being in marriage. But he said, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. And so we explored this idea, what does that mean? Is there the spiritual gift of singleness as an ability to handle being single? And I argued against that. I think what Paul is saying is, is that whatever marital status you're in right now, whether you are married or whether you are single, that is God's gift A to you right now. And so if you're single last week, that is God's plan A for you. Um, and if you're married right now, then that is God's plan A for you. So last week we looked at the gift of singleness. So this week um, we're reversing it. I've got my nice little sign. We're looking at the gift of marriage. So if you are married today... 
you have a very precious gift from God in your possession. And you may already know that and may really treasure the status that you are in right now. On the other hand, you may be second-guessing that gift, just as a number of single people may be second-guessing the gift of singleness and going, really? Uh, I'm not entirely sure this was the gift that I thought it was going to be. And I want us to understand today that if we are married, that we are in possession of an incredible and beautiful grace gift of God. And so I want to explore a little bit more in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So if you've got a Bible with you today, either paper Bible, app on your phone, um, iPad, whatever it is, I'd love you to come with me to 1 Corinthians 7, where we were last week, and we're going to explore this week. Because last week I said what Paul does in this chapter is he's speaking about singleness and marriage, and he kind of jumps between them. And we looked at the, the parts of this chapter that he speaks specifically to singles. Well, today I want to zero in on some of the verses that he addresses to marrieds, in particular verses 10 to 16. So go ahead if you've got a Bible and open up to 1 Corinthians 7. That would be awesome. Last week I shared this quote from the Greek, ancient Greek philosopher Socrates, who famously said, by all means marry. If you get a good wife, you'll become happy. If you get a bad one, you'll become a philosopher which I said last week, Mrs. Socrates wasn't particularly happy when he said that. Um, but I actually don't like this quote. I, it's funny, I laugh as well, but I don't like it because what it does is it puts the onus on your choice of marriage partner. So if you were lucky enough to marry a good wife or husband, depending on your gender, then good for you, you're obviously happy. Man, but if you chose a bad one, oh my goodness, bad luck for you. And, and I don't like that idea because ultimately what that says is if you're not happy in marriage, it's their fault because you, you didn't get a good one. And I actually disagree with that very strongly because to really make a marriage work and to thrive, it takes the both of you. And the key issue actually doesn't come down to the choice you made. Once that choice is made, it's made. It's a matter of the two of you embracing this gift and really making this work. So let's have a look at what uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, let me read the verses and then, uh, and then we'll have a look at them uh, again. We're looking at verses 10 to 16 in particular, which is not everything he says about marriage. There's some more, but these are the verses I want to zero in on today. So 1 Corinthians 7 verse 10, to the married... I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must either remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. The unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? To get a handle on what Paul is doing in these verses, we need to understand the little phrases that are at the beginning of verse 10 and the beginning of verse 12. And what we need to see is that actually they link to a similar phrase at the beginning of verse 8. These are the three uh, phrases here. 
So in verse 8, which was the start of the passage, the singles we looked at last week, Paul had written, Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, and then he went on to his advice that singleness is great. And then in verse 10 he says, To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. And then in verse 12, to the rest I say this, I not the Lord. And you go, so who's speaking here? Like, what's going on? And it's really important to understand what he's doing. The Lord here that he's referring to is Jesus, the Lord Jesus. And he's talking about stuff that Jesus taught. So in verse 8, he's saying, okay, singles, this is what I'm saying to you. And he makes it very clear in those comments to singles that singleness is a gift and it's a good thing. And then his little comment that, actually, I think it's slightly better, is his advice. But it's Paul's teaching. In verse 10, what he's saying is, I'm giving you this command, but it's not actually my command. This is what Jesus said. So in verse 10, Paul is going back to the teaching of Jesus, which we're going to look at in just a minute. Then in verse 12, he says to the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. In other words, he's saying, now this is me again, in verse 12. And he's now going to apply what Jesus says in verses 10 and 11 to a specific situation in verses 12 to 16. Okay, so that's what he's doing. So we're going to look at these two pieces. We've already looked at verses 8 and 9 last week. We're going to look at verses 10 and 11 and then 12 to 16. So verse 10 and 11, what Paul is doing is he repeats Jesus' teaching about being faithful in marriage. That's what these verses are about. In verses 10 and 11, he's saying, Wives, do not separate from your husbands. Husbands, don't divorce your wives. In other words, this is a call to being faithful to your marriage partner. If you are married, Paul says, you remain with your spouse. You don't run off. You don't take off. You don't go sleep with someone else. You don't chuck it in because you're not in love anymore. You are faithful and you stay faithful to your spouse. But what's important to understand is that little phrase in brackets. This is not I, but the Lord. In other words, what Paul is doing is he's repeating Jesus' teaching about faithfulness in marriage. And most probably what he's doing is he's repeating what Jesus taught about divorce and marriage in um, in Matthew chapter 19. So let's have a look at that. Matthew 19 verse 3, some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, at this point in Jewish history, there was some big debates going on among the rabbis about in what circumstances divorce was legitimate. And they went from um, reasonably liberal to ultra-liberal. So there was the conservative camp, that wasn't very conservative at all, that had a whole list of reasons um, that why a husband could divorce his wife, a whole set of circumstances. And that was the conservative stance. The most radical Jewish stance at this time was one rabbi who said, man, if she burns your pancakes in the morning, divorce her. Like, that's it. So the whole Jewish world at this point had got very liberal around divorce, basically giving especially husbands who had the power in that kind of culture real freedom to just get rid of their wives. And so the Pharisees are coming to ask Jesus about that. And if Jesus goes really liberal then they'll accuse him of not really um, being consistent with what the Old Testament teaches. But if Jesus goes quite conservative on them, then he's going to really annoy a whole bunch of people who follow him. So they're really trying to test him here. What's interesting is that Jesus doesn't go back to the law of Moses, which is what the Pharisees are all thinking about. He goes back to the very beginning of the book of Genesis. 
And he says, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female? So he's going right back to the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2. Interestingly enough, by the way, in a society that we're in now, that has redefined marriage to say any two people, two guys, two girls, guy and girl, doesn't matter, Jesus actually defined marriage quite specifically. He said it's male and female. And so while Jesus didn't speak specifically to the issues around the debate around homosexuality and so on in our modern world, he does define marriage very clearly between a husband and a wife, a male and a female. But then he goes on, quoting still from Genesis, and says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's Genesis 2, verse 24. Genesis 2 verse 24 is the foundational verse on marriage in the whole Bible. So when Jesus is asked about divorce, he goes back to the founding definition of marriage and what marriage is all about in the book of Genesis. He goes back to this passage and says, well, let's go back to what God intended. What did God have in mind when he created and instituted marriage? This is what God intended that a man would leave father and mother behind, would focus in on a whole new relationship, the new priority of his life would be his wife, they would be united together, which means to be glued together, to make a commitment to each other, and they would become one flesh. And then Jesus gives this commentary, having quoted Genesis 2, he says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So what's Jesus just said about their question about divorce? He's just ruled it out completely. So he hasn't just gone to the, the, the most conservative viewpoint of his world. He has gone even more conservative to the point of, no. If God has joined a husband and wife together, let no one separate them. Not anyone else coming in and dividing that but nor the husband or wife. He's arguing here strongly for marital faithfulness. I love the way that uh, Andy Stanley summarizes what Jesus says in this final phrase. Andy Stanley puts it this way, you can't unone what God made one. To try and unone something is completely against what God has done. So what Paul is doing here as he's writing to this church in Corinth, and Corinth was a complete mess, we'll talk about it next week, but a complete disaster. The Christians there are confused, and so Paul reiterates the teaching of Jesus, that, that those who are married are to be faithful to marriage. See, this is the big idea for Paul, as he talks now to married people. He's talked to singles, now he's one of those of us who are married. Faithfulness, he says, is the heart of marriage. Faithfulness is at the heart of marriage. If you are married today, it is a gift to you from God. And what Paul is doing is he's repeating what Jesus has already said. We have to remain faithful to our marriage partner. We have to remain committed to this marriage relationship we're in. See, this is what we've vowed to each other. Whether you use traditional vows, whether you write your own vows, which is often what I encourage people to do. I'm going to be marrying Martin and Jess, one of our, two of our young adults in our church in a couple of weeks' time. 
And um, often I encourage couples to write their own vows, but at the end of the day, even writing your own creative vows, they're meant to, to reiterate what our traditional vows said. And so some of you who are married may well have used these exact words or something very similar. I take you to be my husband or wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others till death do us part. Something of that ilk, something of those words. But when you stop and look at the vows that a couple make on their wedding day, it's a vow more than anything else to faithfulness. It is a vow to hold on to each other no matter what. And it goes through these circumstances for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness or in health. No matter what we face, no matter who else comes forsaking all others, I am committing my life to you and I will be faithful to you. I love the way Tim Keller unpacks this in his beautiful book, The Meaning of Marriage. I think it's one of the best books out uh, on, on marriage. He writes, Wedding vows are not a declaration of present love, but a mutually binding promise of future love. I really like that description. A wedding vow is not a declaration of present love. It's a promise of future love. That no matter where we go, no matter what happens, no matter uh, whether we're on mountaintops or walking through deep valleys, I will stay faithful to you. I speak on this at the Family Life Marriage Weekends a couple of times a year. And in the talk that I do, which is actually about Genesis 2 and that whole foundational verse, I talk about some of the vows that I've come across uh, that people use. But, well, one couple, um, apparently in their wedding, they made their vows and finished them by saying, as long as we both shall love. Instead of saying as long as we both shall live, it's as long as we both shall love. And they're not meaning as long as we both continue to remain in a committed love to each other. They're basically saying as long as we still have the feelings that we have at the moment. But if those feelings die, well, you know, I'm out of here. Even worse was another couple I heard about who, 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 who wrote their own vows and said this, I can't promise you forever, but I can promise you today. I mean, whoop-de-snot, who can't promise today? You know, she looks gorgeous, he looks handsome, it's a wonderful day, there's great, you know, wine and food afterwards. Anyone can promise today, but that isn't what marriage is. Marriage is not a promise for today. It is a promise forever. It is a sacred vow that if you are married, that is what you vowed before God, before the person who married you, before your family and friends, the close friends who stood with you that day as your witnesses and your supporters. You vowed your life to each other. No matter what. No matter what comes. No matter what happens. No matter what hardships we face. No matter what our feelings may do through the years and the ups and downs of life. I'll be faithful. I'll be there. No matter what. Tim Keller goes on and says these words. You promise to be loving, faithful and true to the other person in the future. 
regardless of undulating internal feelings or external circumstances. It's exactly right. That's what marriage is about. It is a commitment of faithfulness to one another that says it doesn't matter what our feelings do. It doesn't matter about the circumstances we will face. I will be faithful. For some married couples, these vows will be tested by the feelings. I've had couples sit in my office and say, we don't love each other anymore. And often my question in those circumstances, just to let you know if you do want to come and tell me that at some point, (laughs) my question is to that, are you describing the feelings or are you describing the commitment? Because if you're describing the feelings that you just don't feel in love anymore, my advice to you is to go and work even harder because those feelings will inevitably come back in a healthy marriage. If you're saying we don't love each other in terms of a commitment anymore, then I want to point you to the words of Jesus and the words of Paul who are saying, no, you remain faithful and committed. For other couples, it's the external circumstances. The the, the challenges of life that life brings just make it so hard. Uh, That was Rochelle and I. Rochelle's health crashed uh, four weeks after we got married. Our first years of married life were completely different than what we thought we were getting into because her health was gone and gone for almost the next two decades. So our vows were challenged not by up and down feelings but by the circumstances we faced. We had a lot more of poorer and sickness and worse than the other half of the vows. But what kept us going through those hard years was the vow. We promised. We committed. And that's what it's about. Faithfulness is at the heart of marriage. Why? Why is that such a big deal for Jesus and for Paul? Because that's at the heart of God. God, the Bible declares over and over again, is a faithful God. He is a God who does what he says. He's a God who keeps his promises. He's a God who follows through on what he has said. He's a God who never walks away. So you come to verses like Exodus 34, some of my favorite verses in in the scriptures. This is the very definition of the character of God where God comes down in a cloud and stands with Moses and it says he proclaimed his name Yahweh, the Lord. In other words, he proclaimed to Moses what his name Yahweh means in describing the essence of his being. And he stood with Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, this is who I am, Moses, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. In fact, those two words, love, which are chesed in the Old Testament, means the loyal, never-changing, never-ending love of God is often bound with faithfulness that God never lets us go. This is the passage that Jonah quoted in frustration to God that we saw earlier in the year. Psalm 36.5, which is actually part of the verses that Steph Van White gave to Derelin for her baptism last Sunday night. Your chesed love, Yahweh, reaches to the heavens and your faithfulness to the skies. 
Or Lamentations 3, which is this beautiful song of weeping as Jeremiah cries over the destruction of Jerusalem because God has allowed the Babylonians to sweep in and destroy the city and cart God's idolatrous people away. And in the midst of his tears and grief and lament, Jeremiah sings, it's because of his great love we're not completely consumed. Because his compassions never fail, even in the midst of his judgment on us. They are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. See, this is who God is. And that's declared again and again in the Bible. And what Jesus and Paul are doing is they're wanting us to understand that faithfulness is at the heart of marriage because faithfulness is at the heart of God and who he is. And if we are followers of Jesus, Paul says, we are to stay with our marriage partner. We're going to, we need to follow through on our vows. We need to tighten up our relationship. We need to get help if we need to get help, but we need to stay faithful because our lives are, me- are meant to reflect the beauty and the character of the God we serve. Faithfulness is the heart of marriage because faithfulness is at the heart of who God is. So that's what Paul does here. As he comes in verses 10 and 11 of this, this part of the letter to the church at Corinth, he's calling for faithfulness. He's calling those who are married to stay faithful in marriage. Now, Paul doesn't reiterate it. But Jesus gives an exception. One exception to that call. So let's come back uh, for a minute to Matthew 19. Because Jesus says we are to remain faithful to our marriage partner except where there is marital unfaithfulness on the part of our spouse. There's an exception, Jesus says, for adultery. So that the, he's just talked about what he said, faithfulness in marriage because of Genesis, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, come back to him and say, well, why then did Moses command, uh, which is a little bit extravagant, why did Moses allow, would have been a better way to ask, that a man can give his wife a certificate of divorce, because the law of Moses allowed for divorce, Jesus replies, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. Again, he goes back to Genesis. Jesus then says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So Jesus, again, asserts the need for those of us who are married to stay faithful to our vows, to stay faithful to our marriages. But he does give an exception, except for sexual immorality. When there has been adultery, when one spouse has gone and and slept around and become a one flesh relationship with someone else, then that other spouse who has been sinned against is free, if they choose, to pursue divorce. I can remember sitting down uh, a few years ago now to, with uh, a woman who was married as part of our previous church um, but I was already pastoring Botany Life but she came to see me uh, because she would found out her husband was having an affair and she sat with me in my office and told me about the situation cried and she said I want to know what my options are biblically where do I stand and I said you've got two options one option is that this is the exception Jesus talked about. You are free, if you choose to, to pursue divorce. 
You don't have to wait for him to decide that. You're, you actually have the freedom to do that if you want to do that. And if you do that, then your church should get around you and lovingly support you because you have the right to do that. And so that's completely your right. Your husband has broken the marriage covenant by becoming one flesh with someone else. And so you have the freedom to divorce if you choose to, and you would have our full support, even though we're not your church family, and you have the right to do that. Your other option, I said, is to choose to stay in that marriage. And you can, if you want to, choose to remain there and fight for your marriage. What you need to understand is you don't have to do that. If you choose to do that, then wonderful, but you have the freedom to go either way on this as the offended party in this particular sinful situation. You're free to pursue either, and you just need to decide. What I said to her is you don't have a middle option. The middle option would be that you try to make the marriage work, but if it's still not flying in five years, then you can divorce him because he had an affair. I said, that's not available to you. Because you can't hold this over his head for the next number of decades. If you choose freely to stay in the marriage and make it work, then you're choosing not to divorce. So you need to, if you're going to choose that, you have to choose that with real wisdom and real care because you're then choosing to forgive and lay the sin aside. If you don't feel like you can do that, you have complete freedom to divorce. And she went away, said thank you, went away, prayed at, at length for some time about what she would do. And in the end, she decided in her circumstance that she would stay and she would remain committed to him. He expressed sorrow, sorrow for what he had done and today they have a thriving marriage. It's fantastic. If she'd gone the other way, that would have equally have been a good choice because Jesus here does give freedom in this exceptional situation. And I want to say that because both choices are are good options. And I want to make that clear because we have people in our church who have had their marriages end and it's not because you were unfaithful. It's because your spouse was. And I, I just want you to know if that's you, that's not your fault. That's the choice that your partner made, your spouse made. And Jesus allows freedom in that, that there's no fault because of that. And if you find someone else and want to remarry, you have complete freedom and blessing to do that. So that's the exception. Paul, for whatever reason, doesn't mention that in this situation. Maybe the Corinthians already knew that. Maybe he held that out for, for another reason. But what he's trying to go after is not the exception. He's going after the norm. And the norm is that if you are married, you're to be faithful. So then what he does in the second half of this passage, in verses 12 and following, he now applies Jesus' teaching to a specific situation. Have a look again at verses 12 and 13. He says, to the rest I say this, brackets, I, not the Lord. So he's saying, okay, I've told you what Jesus said, now this is back to me. Now, this doesn't mean that we can look at verses 12 and 13 and go, oh, it's only Paul. Because Paul is writing as an apostle, so 
his words carry actually just as much weight as Jesus' words. But he's just making sure we're clear. Okay, I've repeated what Jesus said. Now I'm going to teach what that looks like in this situation. Verse 12, if a brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, then he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. So, Jesus, uh, so Paul is now giving his own application to this specific situation. And it's possible that some of the Corinthians had written to Paul and said, okay, Paul, we understand that we're meant to stay you know, faithful in marriage and all that, but, but I've become a Christian and my spouse isn't a follower of Jesus. Which is kind of, you know, it's a mixed marriage. And obviously, you know, that's probably not really the best. How do I pursue Jesus when my spouse doesn't want to? So in this situation, Paul, can I, can I ditch my spouse? And, and can I marry someone who does share my faith in Jesus? Would that be okay? And Paul is now taking the words of Jesus about being faithful in marriage, and he's applying them specifically to the situation of what if I'm married to a non-Christian? And Paul says... Be faithful in marriage. If you're married to a non-Christian, then you stay faithful to that marriage. In fact, he does the whole next section, which we're not going to look at, verses 17 to 24. He unpacks this key principle, remain where you are. Whatever situation you're in, when you come to faith in Jesus, you stay there. And you follow Jesus there. So if you've come to faith in Jesus, and your spouse has not come to faith in Jesus... You stay in that marriage, and you remain faithful to your spouse. Then, oh, and then he says in verse 14, the reason is that your marriage is sanctified. You're like, what the heck does that mean? And your children are holy and all this kind of stuff. They're not unclean, which is nice to hear. What he's simply saying is, if you're in a mixed marriage, if, if, if one of you is a, a believer and follower of Jesus, and, and the other spouse isn't, then there's something holy about your home, even though not everyone in your home is a follower of Jesus. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, when you go home every day, God is in your home, because the Holy Spirit lives in you. And so because you're a follower of Jesus, it doesn't matter if no one else in your family is. There's a sense of holiness in your family, because the Spirit is there in you. That's what he's saying in verse 14. But then what he does is he gives a, a second exception. Verses 15 and 16. He says, but if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister then is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live at peace. So in other words, what he's saying is, if you are married to a non-Christian, you stay faithful. But if they go Oh, this is weird. Like you go to church every Sunday and you want to be part of a small group and you want to read the Bible and pray with our kids every night and then you talk to me about giving some money to the church? I am out of here. He says, if they choose to leave, let them go. In other words, you fight, you work hard, you stay faithful. But if they choose not to, that's not over to you. You let them go and I take Paul's words to mean, but you're then free to remarry. And so those become the two exceptions. What we're not to miss is the point, though. The point is not the exceptions. 
The point is the point, which is that faithfulness is the heart of marriage. And if we are married and we're both Christians, then we are both to remain committed to our marriage as followers of Jesus and make it work. If you are married to a non-Christian and they want to stay married, then you stay married and make your marriage work and be faithful to what you vowed. Because faithfulness is at the heart of marriage. Now, whenever I've taught on this, there has often been pushback. And the pushback goes like this. But what if we don't love each other anymore? What if we're miserable? What if when we looked at that list you gave in week one about all the singles, finding the one, and here's the criteria. What if now I look at that criteria 10 years into marriage and go, man, I really made a bummer of a choice. What what do I do now? Well, here's what Jesus and Paul tell you to do. Be faithful. Stay in your marriage and make it work. And in the world we live in now, we go, but that doesn't feel right. You know, I'm married and miserable. What do you do if you're married and miserable? Well, the society that we live in now says, what's the most important thing? The most important thing in life is that you are happy. And if you are married and miserable, you aren't happy. So something's got to change. So you know what you should do? Ditch the marriage. Man, if you're not happy... Don't hang around. What's the point of that? Ditch that. Go find someone else. And the funny thing is, that's exactly what all those Jewish rabbis were saying in Jesus' day. Oh, guys, if you're not happy, just flick her off. Give her a certificate of divorce. You burn the pancakes for the third morning in a row. And that's exactly what the Roman Empire was saying in Paul's day. Complete freedom for men in the Roman Empire especially to just ditch their wives, get rid of them. So in their world and in our world, man, married and miserable, ditch the marriage. And what Paul and Jesus are saying, if you're married and miserable, don't change the marriage. Why don't you change the miserable? Why don't you go after changing the tone and feel of your marriage? Why don't you do that? Why don't you understand And come to realize, God has given you a precious gift. And if you're married, this is his grace gift to you. The answer, if you're miserable, is not to ditch the gift. It's to work at the gift until you're not miserable anymore. It is to embrace the gift God has given It would be like driving a car down the road and it runs out of gas. And so you sell it because there's obviously something wrong with the car. No, there's nothing wrong with the car. It just needs more gas. If you feel like you're miserable in your marriage and you feel like there's not a lot of love there anymore, don't ditch the marriage. Start pouring more love in until it's running the way it should run. So as we finish this morning, I just want to say a few words to those who are married.
especially if you're married and miserable, but if you're married and reasonably happy, or married and pretty satisfied, or married and completely stoked, these words are for you. Five things as we finish. Embrace God's gift of marriage. Number one, if you are married, would you please understand the beauty of what 1 Corinthians 7, 7 teaches you? For singles, that means singleness is a gift. It is not God's plan B. It is God's plan A for your life. But the converse is true for those of us who are married. This is not plan B. This is God's plan A for your life in this season. So embrace it. Understand this is a gift of God's grace to you. Secondly, lock the back door. Understand that Jesus and Paul's words about marital faithfulness means divorce is off the table. It should never come up in a conversation. It should never come up in an argument. It should never just be pulled out of the backpack when you're really ticked off with the other person. The back door of your marriage should not be slightly ajar, just to see. It should not even be closed. It should be closed, locked, bolted, and the key thrown away forever and ever. Shut the back door. Love this comment from Kim Kimberling uh, from his book on marriage. I've never met a couple with a good marriage who have not gone through hard times. The difference is that some couples go through hardships super glued together and some go through them taking separate paths. In other words, some people fight for their marriage and some do not. And the big difference between couples who are super glued and choose to fight for their marriage is the back door is shut and locked and bolted. Lock the back door. No matter what happens, we are stuck with each other and we are going to make this thing work. It's not a commitment to be a miserable marriage. It's a commitment to a great marriage. But a great marriage takes work together. Lock the back door. Thirdly, fight the selfish gene. The biggest, the biggest issue in your marriage is you. The biggest problem in my marriage is me. Rochelle's illness in our first ever year of marriage did an amazing job of highlighting in my life how selfish I was. I've said before, I never realized what a selfish person I was until I got married. Because I was married, and suddenly I was married to a wife who wasn't functioning well. She was pretty ill, very tired. She ended up having to give up um, work. She was not in a good space. And there were so many internal battles going on in my head about the way that this marriage is not what I thought it was going to be, and this is hard, and she's not functioning well. And I, I, I suddenly came face to face with the realisation of how ugly my selfishness was. And that's where that message, becoming the one, working on the man in the mirror, came from. Because I suddenly realised how much I had to change to be the husband that she needed to get through what life was looking like for us. If you're married, the greatest thing you can do for your marriage is to become the one God wants you to be. 
And that means fighting the selfish gene. In a, in a book on marriage, he's written Craig Rochelle, who's a pastor of a large church in America. He talks about a wedding that he did of two good friends. And he was midway through the service itself, and he looked down at his notes, and the next sentence, he said, I'd intended to write, the two would be united. And instead, he looked down, and he had a horrible moment, and he, he stopped, because it said, actually, in his notes, the two would be untied. And he had to actually stop and do a mental, hold on, it's meant to be united, and he managed to say the right word, which is good, because you know their wedding was on video and everything else. But as he reflected on this, he writes this. It may sound corny, but this typo illustrates a truth. No matter what else is happening in a marriage, if the eye is not in the right place, both will become untied. It is a little corny, but I really like it. If the eye is not in the right place, marriage becomes real hard work. Fight the selfish gene. Fourthly, grow together, not apart. One of the biggest issues in marriage once you've been married for a while is drift. You just drift. It's often when kids come along and time becomes this missing element and you're tired and careers take off and busyness happens and it is so incredibly easy to drift. I don't know of any couple on their wedding day who said, you know what, we're planning divorce in seven years by just simply slowly going our separate ways. We don't deliberately drift, it just happens. And so part of embracing God's gift of marriage is choosing and working hard to grow together rather than drifting apart. Um, Anne Landers, the famous you know, columnist in America, said, neglect the whole world before you neglect each other. Neglect the whole world before you neglect each other. Andy Stanley's written a book called Choosing to Cheat. And he, he talks about the fact that you can't please everyone in your life. And the problem is what people will do is they will cheat on their marriage for the sake of their career or for the sake of their, their other uh, leisure activities. Or they'll cheat on their marriage for the sake of their kids. And what, what Andy Stanley says is, no, no, cheat on all the other stuff for the sake of your marriage. Cheat on work. You know, be the dude who goes home at five o'clock because you want to spend time with your, 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 your wife. You know, be the woman who, who, who lays aside um, chasing the corporate ladder if that's what it takes. Uh, Rochelle and I have made a commitment to each other that if we ever feel like pastoral ministry is causing us to drift apart, I'll step out of being a pastor. Because honestly, I love you, but I love her more than you. <laughs> and our marriage is more important than the pastorate. Neglect the whole world before you neglect each other. Craig Rochelle's wife, Amy, wrote, Time together is essential. Work on going the same direction with each other. Relational drift happens if we don't commit to regularly sharing our lives as a couple. Don't allow distractions to stop you from engaging with your spouse. And then final one, if you need help, get help. If you need help, get help. That means buying a book on marriage and reading it, then do it. 
I mean, signing up to the Right Now Media that we subscribe to as a church. Every one of us has a free subscription to that if you've never used it. Jump on Right Now Media. Find something on marriage. Sit down and watch it together as a couple if you need to. If that means go to a family life weekend to remember conference, then do it. If you can't do it because of kids, let us know. We'll find babysitters. All right? We'll send everyone around to one of the elders' house for the weekend so you can go. <laughs> Thanks, Andre. I just saw Andre and Crystal. Thank you. If you need to do a conference, carve out a weekend, do it. If you need to go to counselling, do it. If you need to come and see me as a couple, don't worry me if I have eight appointments this week of eight different couples in the church, I'll do it. And if you need to see a professional counsellor, do it. Best decision we made as a couple, Rochelle and I, was to go to marriage counselling. We've gone. And if that's what it takes to make your marriage thrive, then can we get rid of the whole... Oh, I could never do that. Absolutely. Our marriage is worth it. And if you need to sit down with a professional the way Rochelle and I did, then do it. Because that's what it takes to embrace the gift. Faithfulness is at the heart of marriage. And if you're married today, that is what Jesus and Paul and a loving, faithful father calls you to. This feels uh, close to my heart today. I was at a Living Stones board meeting uh, this week. It's part of the network that we're part of. I'm on the board for that. We had our final board meeting on Wednesday. We were sitting in the board meeting and one of the other uh, guys on the board shared about a pastor that all of us know. He's not a pastoral minister anymore. He stepped out of that to pursue another role. But we found out on Wednesday that their marriages parted. He's packed his bags and left. My heart just grieved again. Someone else? Another one? I don't know the circumstances. I don't know what's going on. I don't know if there's someone else involved or some deep sin that's been hidden. I don't know if they've just drifted apart. I don't know the circumstances and I don't need to know. All I know is that another wonderful couple who love Jesus aren't living in the same house today. Because it's far too easy to just drift. And sometimes far too easy to pack a bag and walk away. If you're married today, can I urge you, stay faithful. Stay committed. Do whatever it takes to live out the vows that you made. I want to pray. And I want to pray especially for those of us who are married today. I want to pray for those who are engaged. And I want to pray for those who have been married and have suffered the, the hardship of seeing that marriage break. Because the wonderful thing about being a follower of Jesus is that whether you weren't at fault because your spouse walked out on you or whether there was a part that you played, there is forgiveness and there is grace, and there is hope in Jesus. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, this is a hard message at times. We understand the big idea. You call us to faithfulness because you are a faithful God. But it isn't always easy. God, so often we're brought into this romantic myth that if we really love someone, 
we'll just live happily ever after and we don't factor in that two sinners living happily ever after is going to take enormous work and communication and forgiveness and love. God, I want to pray today for every married couple in this room, for every married couple listening to this on the internet. God, would you help us to be faithful? Would you give us stickability? Would you help us to understand those vows that we made, whether that was a year ago or 51 years ago? Would you help us to live out what we promised to do? Because that's who you are. God, for every marriage in our church family now that is going well, would you supercharge it, please? Would you help that marriage thrive even more? Lord, for every marriage that is struggling at the moment, where husband or wife or both are just miserable, would you help them to lock the back door and throw away the key and hold each other's hands and get help? Because, Lord, you don't want us to ditch the marriage, but you don't want us to be miserable either. Help us to live out the vows in those circumstances. God, for those who are engaged or those who are about to be engaged, I pray for their future marriage. That right now, both uh, fiancés would be working to become the one they need to be to really make marriage thrive. Would you bless those future marriages? And God, for those sitting here this morning or listening to this online who were married and who now aren't and who feel the pain of that, God, would you, as you promised to do, be the God who binds up the brokenhearted? Whether that person was left by a spouse who chose to leave them or whether they're the one who did the leaving whether there was no major fault on their side or whether there was significant fault both ways. You're the God of grace and forgiveness. And I pray for every single person who has gone through the agony of divorce that they right now would know your love for them. Thank you that you're the God who restores the brokenhearted. You're the God who forgives every sin. You're the God who restores what the locusts have eaten. God, thank you that no matter where we're at in life, we can trust in you, the God of unfailing love. In Jesus' beautiful name, amen.